Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Here we are again. Thank you for last night. By the way, the response was unbelievable. We are gathering hundreds of thousands of listeners and viewers. Make sure you tell your friends. I know you feel that our country, like many, is in a mess dominated by the politically correct and the woke who want to silence any opposing view. In the weeks ahead, I'll be looking at some of that stuff. It is now clear, for example, that much of what we were ordered to do during coronavirus intimidated into doing it, was flawed, and there are significant consequences. The issue here is simple. Be careful of what we're being told and be very curious about we're not, what we're not being told. For example, in America, as part of the pylon against Donald Trump, prosecutors have filed conspiracy charges against 40 quote-unquote defendants, alleging that they engaged in some degree of planning before the January 6, 2021 attack on the US Capitol. But are we aware that as far back as August 2021, the FBI, not notably on Trump's side, and that's an issue I also will be looking at shortly, the FBI found there was scant evidence that the January 6 attack was the result of an organized plot to overturn the presidential election result. Now, you may not recall that federal officials arrested more than 570 alleged participants, yet the FBI investigators found that the violence was not coordinated and, according to reports, not widely disseminated. But remember, more than 570 alleged participants were investigated. On January 11 last year, the American Senate Judiciary Committee, this is 2022, held a hearing focusing on the threat of domestic terrorism. Now, get this, one Matthew Olson is the Assistant Attorney General for the Department of Justice's National Security Division, and Jill Sanborn is the Executive Assistant Director of the FBI's National Security Branch. They both testified. Matters heard included the January 6, 2021 attack, many months, almost a year earlier, on the US Capitol and civil unrest following the police killing of George Floyd, also in 2020. Here is the very talented senator, Texas senator, could be a presidential candidate, Ted Cruz, educated at the Harvard Law School, very smart, and the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Ted Cruz is questioning the Assistant Attorney General for the Department of Justice's National Security Division. Division. Just listen to this. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Olson, how many people have been charged with crimes of violence in connection with the events on January 6th? Senator, I'm not sure exactly how many uh, have been charged with crimes of violence. I know that there are many. Okay. How, how many have been charged with nonviolent crimes? I don't have the numbers of people charged, whether at the state or federal level. I know that okay. there have How many people are currently incarcerated concerning the events of January 6th? I don't know the number of people incarcerated. Again, I know that I, I How do many have... Okay, let me ask you that. Look, we have limited time, so I don't want you to filibuster. You either know the answer or you don't. How many people have been placed in solitary confinement concerning the events of January 6th? I don't have any information about that, Senator. You know, Mr. Olson, I will say it was sad. Senator Lee just asked you about this. Back in June of 2021, Senator Lee and I and two other senators sent a letter to the Department of Justice asking these questions, asking about the differential prosecutions. Let me ask you, during 2020, Black Lives Matter and Antifa riots all across the country, there were over 700 police officers injured by Black Lives Matter and Antifa riots. How many people have been charged with crimes of violence concerning those riots all across the country? I don't have information on how many, I, I would say, you know, hundreds of people, as Ms. You, you would say, but, but you don't know. You know, when we asked you why the Biden Department of Justice has such wildly disparate standards, going after January 6th, targeting some people who committed crimes of violence, and anyone who commits a crimes of, of violence should be prosecuted, but also targeting a lot of nonviolent individuals, 
We asked you, why is it that you won't target the rioters and terrorists who firebomb cities across this country? The answer we got from the Department of Justice was shameful. On October 22nd, you came back and said, quote, the department has dedicated investigative and prosecutorial resources commensurate with the significance of these events. By significance, I guess it means the political benefit to the Biden White House. And I will tell you, there are a great many Americans who are understandably deeply concerned about the politicization of the Department of Justice under President Joe Biden. It has been 218 days since we sent you that letter. DOJ refused to answer the letter today when Senator Lee and I asked you about it. Your answer to every damn question is, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. You're under oath. You may believe at the Department of Justice that you are unaccountable to the American people, but that is not the case, and the wildly disparate standards are unacceptable. Hmm. Well, were we told any of this? How many people are incarcerated regarding the events of January 6, asked Ted Cruz. The Assistant Attorney General doesn't know. But as Ted Cruz said, they were asked about this in June 2021, six months before that interrogation. And in relation to the 2020 Black Lives Matter, where, as Senator Cruz said, 170 police officers were injured and cities were firebombed across the country, Senator Cruz asked, why were there disparate standards of justice applied to the January 6 episode, as opposed to the firebombing of America by Black Lives Matter. This brings me indirectly to the matters I raised last night with Jacinta Price. The Albanese government would be in trouble on this whole Alice Springs issue if a compliant media focused on the truth. When Anthony Albanese became prime minister, there were alcohol bans in place in 32 town camps around Alice Springs, 12 remote communities and 215 homelands and outstations right across the Northern Territory. The bans have been in place for 15 years since 2007 under two separate pieces of legislation. Two months after Anthony Albanese became Prime Minister, the period to which the legislation applied ended. The Albanese government could have extended the bans. It didn't. To a man and woman, they argued the bans were racist even though many Indigenous Northern Territorians supported the bans. So, no alcohol bans. What's happened? A crime wave of horrific proportions, hundreds of children roaming the streets of Alice Springs, many fleeing domestic violence. Darren Clark has been campaigning for action because his bakery has been broken into 41 times in the past three years. Jacinta Price, to whom I spoke last night, has repeatedly called for these bans to be reimposed. She was always ignored by Mr Albanese. He took his cue from the Labor government leader in the Northern Territory, Natasha Files. The bans were racist. Don't listen to elected Indigenous women with a first-hand knowledge of the problem. No, 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 no. No, listen to the Northern Territory Labor leader from the left faction, of course, who repeatedly ignored the advice of local Indigenous women, which prompts a simple but truthful observation. The Prime Minister doesn't want, or didn't want, what he saw as a race-based solution to alcohol abuse. But he wants you and I to back a race-based voice to Parliament. This is what you get from the Labor Party left. Ideology first, relieving the suffering of people a very poor second. What are your thoughts about what we're not being told, but what we are entitled to know. Email me, alanjones at adh.tv. You will remember I mentioned last night the speech by the Prime Minister last Sunday, where he sought to argue that those who oppose an Aborigines-only voice to Parliament are trying to start a culture war. I would assert that the Albanese government is unapologetically and somewhat secretly and without a mandate and with only 32% of the national vote, is itself embarking on a culture war. The $5 note will no longer have the monarch's picture. We have a new ambassador for First Nations people. We have an assistant minister for the Republic, which we don't have. 
We have the war against coal and gas producers, telling them what, what they can charge for what they produce. I asked a few minutes ago, who or what will be next? Well, we know the answer, Australia Day. And look out, Anzac Day is coming up. But let's go to Australia Day. In Melbourne, there was a big anti-Australia Day protest on Australia Day. Was it widely reported or are they part of the Albanese platoon in this culture war? A bloke was apparently welcomed onto the stage of this Australia Day protest called Rocky Harrison. Apparently he was shirtless and announced to the gathering that he had been in prison and fired a string of obscenities and insults at police and jailers. My former colleague, Andrew Bolt, who writes splendidly on this stuff, was perhaps witness to this, reporting the bloke saying of police and jailers that I quote, F these, effing white dogs, effing screws, effing white maggots. And pointing to the police standing near the Flinders Street station, I quote, F the police, I'll effing shoot you, you effing dogs. Why wasn't this bloke immediately arrested and charged with racism and violence? Instead, the crowd cheered. Apparently the MC of this anti-Australia Day protest was a woman who led the mob chanting, F the police, F the police, F your prisons. And she went on, whites celebrating Australia Day with your effing little barbecues. I hope you choke on your lamb chops, F you. And as Andrew reported, two other official speakers, including a CFMEU organiser, shouted, F the police. Shouldn't this hate speak be punished? Lydia Thorpe was apparently there, waving a war stick. And according to Andrew yelling, quote, this is a war, a war that was declared on our people over 200 years ago. That war has never ended in our country against our people. They're still killing us. They're still stealing our babies. They're killing our men. They're still raping our women. So in other words, a racist attack on white Australians, when we know that the tragedy of murdered Aboriginal women is invariably at the hands of their Aboriginal partners. Who has been charged over this stuff? If the police were at Flinders Street Station, why didn't they move in? Does Daniel Andrews support these racist and hateful attacks? After all, silence betokens consent. Is there any nation on the planet that allows its national day and its history to be talked down and attacked? Consider France. They celebrate Bastille Day, marking the anniversary of the fall on July 14, 1789 of the Bastille, a medieval fortress but the day commemorates a violent uprising that ushered in the French Revolution. But the French have a massive party on Bastille Day. It wasn't always like this in Australia. Remember January 26, 1988, some of us can. The newspapers proclaimed, so proud, 200 today, happy birthday, Australia. So how have we got to this point? Start asking what's being taught in our classrooms. A highly intelligent 16-year-old girl at a prestigious private school told me that she was told by her English teacher that they wouldn't be celebrating January 26. It was a day of mourning, a day of invasion. This is where it starts. Were we colonised? Yes. And if we weren't, the French or the Dutch or even the Japanese would have. But since that day in 1788, we've become one of the great nations of the world, not just because of our wealth or our standard of living or our institutions, but because we honour the rule of law and liberty and democracy, and we recognise our Indigenous people. We don't belittle or disregard their culture. We respect it. We acknowledge it. We help where we can. But some want to keep the culture war alive and fan the division. I thought we were all Australians now, no matter our origin. But we have to win this battle of ideas to make sure our true Australian values are not undermined. But our Prime Minister says that it's fine to give workers a choice as to whether they work on Australia Day or not. He said it's called flexibility. The Lord Mayor of Sydney, Clover Moore, has said that citizenship ceremonies shouldn't be held on Invasion Day. Tennis Australia had a gay rights day at the Australian Championships, but proudly announced that Melbourne Park would be an Australia Day free zone. If the Prime Minister of Australia says that he'll allow councils not to hold citizenship ceremonies on Australia Day. It is a clear message that he is happy to undermine our national day, happy to deprive migrants of the right to take their pledge on our national day. Well, the former Deputy Prime Minister and former National Party leader Barnaby Joyce 
delivered one of the finest Australia Day messages I have heard, in which he ended by saying, and I quote, I don't feel embarrassed or guilty that I'll be celebrating Australia Day, and nor should you. To all the CEOs, he said, working on Australia Day, he said, arrive early, shut the door of your suite, work hard, but don't bleed all over us. Barnaby Joyce joins me. Barnaby, thank you for your time. We're now being told by the Prime Minister that if you oppose the voice, you're some right-wing ratbag that's starting a culture war. Who has started the culture war, Barnaby? Well, they have. Now, let's go through this. And I gave a speech in Parliament today, Alan, about this in the 92nd statement. So two children are born in Tamworth Base Hospital side by side. Um, then they go back to the same street in the same suburb. Uh, they go to the same school to go to the same high school. But apparently one of those children is going to be ha have the capacity to avail themselves of a greater form of democracy, of a greater participation in this building than the other child on the basis of their DNA. Now, I find that anathema, that we would uh, differentiate Australian citizens on either religion, on uh, their sexuality, on their uh, uh, creed or their colour. And yet we, we're going to put this into our constitution. We, we took a long time to get it out of our constitution. And one of the great days for Australia was in 1967 when it was removed from our constitution. Now it's going back in. And of course, it's the swindle. And I said it as that. It's the great swindle because your listeners, they get to vote for The Voice. Now, doesn't that sound great? It's like a, it's a show on television. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. We all love voice, especially people with nice voices. We love them. But they don't actually tell you what The Voice is. And inevitably, after you vote for The Voice, then they legislate for what The Voice is. Then they describe what The Voice is. But the people who will be doing the description will be the Labor Party and the Greens that have the majority in the parliament. So it'll be the not your voice, but their voice, the Labor Party and the Green voice. And the reason they put it into the Constitution is it becomes um, an inalienable right. It goes into our Constitution. And at that point forward, it becomes uh, interpreted by the High Court. Mm. They can overrule legislation in this parliament. Well, let, let, me just go, let me just go. So I, I think... I think the voice is headed for the high jump, quite frankly. I just want to go back to something you said, though, here about this Australia Day, because uh, you mentioned this Telstra CEO, Vicky Brady, boasting that she yes. would be working on Australia Day. But as you rightly said, so do doctors, nurses, the Defence Force, service stations, most coffee shops. But then your yep. key words, the only difference is Miss Brady had decided to make it a statement of her virtue. Um, you've made this very good point when you urge Miss Brady to trot out to regional Australia and spend time with technicians who will also be working. And Barnaby, given that Telstra have a universal service obligation, could Miss Brady explain why many rural Australians get no reception on their mobile phone, even if they're only a couple of hours from Sydney? Well, Miss Brady is now rolling out 5G, but of course what 5G is is a, small, a better service and a smaller footprint. And as they remove 3G, it means that people who had a 3G service get no service. They go back into the dark ages. And uh, so often people say, oh, isn't it wonderful, Barnaby? You go up that hill so we can have that beautiful view yeah. of all the, all the mountains in the background where you do uh, some television interviews. Yeah. The reason I go there is because it's the only place to get telephone service. To make a phone call. But Barnaby, on this Australia and Day, so the government seems to be at a referenda. Want a referendum? Why not ask the nation whether they want to honour January 26th? the overwhelming view would be yes. Why are we dominated by rowdy, vulgar, intimidating minorities? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's a very clear plan of attack from the left and probably borrowed from, you know, the Jesuit or St Ignatius, give me a child till he's seven and he's mine for life, or he or she is mine for life. And the Teachers' Federation, which is a, a very, very left-wing organisation, has custody of our children and therefore has the capacity to indoctrinate them in the way they wanted the world to be seen, through their eyes. Now, um, unfortunately, uh, that is the path to oblivion. And we all have a, a grandparents, parents have a role to say, that might be what the teacher tells you, but it's not the truth. That's and um, I have to now give some balance yeah. to basically the yeah. indoctrination, as you brought up earlier in your own show, yeah. Alan, that is happening. Your children go it in is. and they start saying, 
verbatim, you shall recite back to me yeah. Uluru's statement from the heart. Yeah. It's, it's not and getting welcome, And welcome to country. So you made in that wonderful speech on Australia Day, you turned to Miss Brady and you said to her, most probably with bonuses, she's probably in the multiple millions. But then you said, I'll give my reasons, you said, why I will be celebrating Australia Day and why there is no fault in the fact that we do. So Barnaby, this is a free kick. Away you go. Why should we fight back in this culture war and defend and celebrate Australia Day? This wonderful nation of ours has offered their sons and their daughters uh, their lives um, for the protection of the freedoms that we take as an inalienable right, but other, pe other people and other nations don't get at all. From a seed stock, not of invaders, but of convicts, people, uh, petty criminals, unjustly sent to the other side of the world, protected by people who also didn't want to be here and probably met by people who didn't want them here. But from that, from that, from that almost uh, that paucity of opportunity, we have grown this incredible nation, the most egalitarian, the freest, where anybody is, can become who they wish to be. You are not defined by caste, by colour, by religion. You are, as you walk up to another person, is if you walk up as a dill, you'll be tra treated as a dill. Is if you walk up as arrogant, you'll be treated as arrogant. And if you walk up and want to have a go, you'll get a go. So I think that is an incredible nation, and it's and the people who understand it best are immigrants to this nation, who say you don't understand what you've got here. You are so blessed. You are so lucky. So the fact that we have managed to do that. Remember, they were going to close the so-called colony of Australia down, bag it all up and send it back to Portsmouth. They thought it was a hopeless endeavour. But people persevered and they got through. And after that period of time, we have managed to give to the world a nation that feeds them. And for, a, for merely 26 million people, the 13th biggest economy on earth. Now, if that's not worth celebrating, if we are going to be so shy of the sacrifices, because Anzac Day is about military sacrifices made and, there's, and it's so warranted that we re represent that. But people have also civilly served this nation throughout the time since um, 1788 to build this nation into what it is. They have taken, they've given more than was ever asked of them. And for that, we celebrate our nation and we celebrate the service of those people. You said that if you go to a public, you cited all these examples. It was an excellent speech. If you go to a public hospital, they don't ask you to pay before they put you in an ambulance. You said, we can all go back in history and find fault. You said, but we do so at the expense of forgetting all of those who've selflessly offered so much of their lives to make this nation what it is today. And this lovely line, Barnaby Joyce, viewers cop this. This is what Barnaby said. I love it. Typical Barnaby Joyce this. When you fly into Sydney, you don't just get a slight ping of pride as you see the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House on the same harbour on which Governor Philip arrived. And think, as a nation, we've not done too badly. Barnaby said, I'd be surprised if you pulled the blinds down and became contorted with guilt at the sight of you that's outside your window. I mean, that's the guts of it, isn't it? But are we winning or losing the battle? The public, the, the mob, the major majority of Australians who aren't represented in all this Australia Day headlines, aren't heard from, but we hear these rat bags in Melbourne. And what do young people think? They think, oh, well, perhaps this is a day of invasion. Perhaps we shouldn't. And all of these young people are being indoctrinated will vote in a couple of years' time. Well, and, and it's also factually incorrect. In fact, yes. if Governor Phillip had been anybody else, then you might have had a case, but Governor Philip actually enforced law with equality, and that yeah. is another great thing. In other parts of the world, remember, the time Governor Philip turned up, the United States had unquestioning slavery. They didn't. It was it was not even an issue. Russia had served them. In Southeast Asia, the, the the French were just basically enslaving people into the into the rubber economy. Belgians later on, under King Leopold I, and later on, they were actually using the skulls of the people they invaded as part of their the adornments of their gardens. They put people in cages and told people to go look at them. They decapitated and, 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 and amputated people for petty crimes. They enslaved people. This is what the world was like. Yet in Australia, we had people, and we're always going to be colonised, it just wasn't a matter of whether, it was a matter by whom, that what we had 
is people said, no, we're going to have the rule of law that will be enacted with an equality regardless of your creed or your colour. You break the law, you break the law. And as brought up uh, by Vicky, one uh, out at Parramatta, some convicts, poor souls, they stole um, an Aboriginal uh, boy's canoe. Governor Philip had them hanged. Yeah, so uh, this is the side, this was, for their time, it was a completely different approach. It was, but see, the, and it's the, not something we should be ashamed of. The debate is dominated by ignorance. You see, you've got P&O Cruises had issued a directive to ban the flying of the Australian flag during Australia Day cruises. Now, the ban was overturned, but this is the nature of the thinking that's infecting us. I mean, is Anthony Albanese on the right side of the argument where he tells public servants, well, you can please yourselves whether you work on Australia Day or not? I mean, just for the viewers, the Morrison government had banned public servants working on Australia Day. But, but Barnaby, are elite corporate and public institutions so fearful of the backlash from minority activists that they're prepared to trash Australian values to accommodate a minority? Those who have been, who have been blessed with the greatest benevolence of our nation now seem to be on a on a course to try and diminish yes. our nation yes. and uh, and sort of just do this sort of almost like uh, as the left do this sort of reorganisation of reorganisation recalibration retelling of history. But if you look at the people who have these, you know, who sort of uh, live with this sense of a, immense emotional trauma about Australia Day, you inevitably find they went to a very good private school. They grew up in a very uh, upper middle class, white, um, in an urban area, and good luck and God bless them. Got no problems with that. But they've been the, probably the greatest beneficiary of the service of others that came before them, that created the wealth for the nation, that give, has given them the lifestyle and the wealth they enjoy. Yet at the last part, they're the last domino, and they stand up and say, oh, well, I'm more righteous than all those who came before me, and now I'm going to make a statement that belittles all those who gave me the opportunity to have this job that I've got. And it is a clique. And you see it, Alan, I see it, and especially see it in certain circles around Sydney. And, we, you know, I, I, went, to a, I went to a boarding school. I, I see it myself, you know. And, but you say, what suffering have you really encountered that you've decided to turn my nation upside down? Correct. In fact, you should be the first person turning up and saying, thank God that I have been a child brought up and given the opportunities that I have mm. in Australia. Mm. You should be at the Absolutely. front of the queue. Absolutely. But thanking, the, Lord, Mayor, the Lord Mayor of Sydney says citizenship ceremonies shouldn't be held on Invasion Day. But Australians, as you said, who migrated here, look forward to becoming citizens on our national Absolutely. day. Now that's being deprived. Daniel Andrews cancelled the Australia Day parade for the third year in a row. I mean, councils cancelling citizenship ceremonies. Barnaby, how do you foster a healthy patriotism in this environment? Well, maybe you have to borrow from some people, such as the member for Fowler, who gave her a, uh, who gave her a maiden speech, her first speech, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, Lee. And she did it in a Vietnamese-styled yeah. address yeah. that was made with, with the Australian flag. Yeah. And and that just screamed at me as I listened to that marvelous speech. This person understands how lucky we are to be here. She's not ashamed of being Australian. She's not ashamed of our nation. Yet um, this sort of conceited, gin-sipping, harbour-viewing, oh, you know, I, I, I'm tormented by, you know, the, the turmoils of this terrible life that has been cast upon me with my, you know, $2 million salary and my Tesla and my, you know, and, and my yacht. And, it, you know, you don't, it, what always really moves my heart, Alan, is I go through the towns, the little villages doing it tough, the towns doing it tough, the weatherboard iron, and I see the Australian flag in their window. That's right. I see them with the Australian flag in their yeah. window. Yeah. And they who have not been the beneficiary of all the largesse and good luck of others say, I'm proud to be Australian. Mm. Yeah, these people say, oh, you know, oh, terrible. Well, Barnaby, let's end here by putting it in political terms because viewers would say, well, look, the left are in the ascendant. When is the coalition going to get out of low gear and start turning this around? This is a leadership crisis. 
Well, Alan, I, I hope that is the case. I believe that I do believe the the referendum will go down, and I think that will be yeah. uh, a sort of a seminal moment. I don't think it's going to go down because of anything that happens in this building. I think it's going to go down because the Australian people are going to vote it down. That's and correct. I think the people fall into that trap and saying because they say something to the camera is what they're actually thinking. No, they say things to the camera and they say things to the phone that they think gets you off the line. Yeah. And what they think actually in their deeper kernels of their heart yeah. is something entirely different. They keep to the ballot And when box. they get into the, uh, into the sanctity of having a, uh, a, a, a vote, a, a vote yeah. they will uh, ask the vote against it like mm. they did with the Republic. Good on you. Barnaby, always great to talk to you. And out there, they're saying tonight, thank God for him. He's saying what the bulk of Australians are thinking. We've got to fight on our hands, but we'll be equal to that. Talk again soon, I hope. All the best to you and your family. Always a pleasure, Alan. Thank you very much for the opportunity. There you are, Barnaby Joyce. Doesn't that make sense? Last night, I highlighted how tired we've become of welcome to country. And the fact that, as, as historian Keith Windshuttle has said, and I quote him, it was introduced without public debate, let alone public support, and its authors have never been named or their purposes justified, unquote. He further has said of welcome to country, quote, this was foisted on a mystified public as though it had the sanction of deep indigenous tradition, unquote. Now the public are sick of it, and now they're growing just as tired, as Barnaby alluded to, of the voice. Repeating what I've just said, the Prime Minister has opposed alcohol bans in the Northern Territory because they were racist, race-based. But the same Prime Minister wants us to back a race-based voice to Parliament. This week, the headlines virtually screamed that the voice proposal still earns the support of a quiet majority. I suppose you can make anything out of figures. The reality is in the latest news poll, only 28% of those people polled were strongly in favour, 28%. And rightly, the reasons against the voice predominantly were that it won't fix problems and it constitutionally favours one group. In fact, Labor's special envoy for reconciliation, Patrick Dodson, is now saying an Indigenous voice to Parliament should have a role in advising the National Cabinet, a seat at the table of the National Cabinet. Is it not logical to say that if that constitutional right is available to Indigenous Australians, why shouldn't aged Australians have a right to advise Cabinet, or Muslim Australians, or Italian Australians, or disabled Australians? We're in a sad state when you have some of Australia's largest corporations, I suspect ignorant of the issues or the consequences, promising to educate their employees ahead of the referendum in the form of seminars, bespoke web pages and forums. The Indigenous opponent of The Voice, Warren Mundine, has attacked such woke companies for running, quote, biased education programs that favour the Yes campaign while pushing their corporate agenda. Now, there's a stack of them, KPMG, Lend, Lease, Deloitte. Pity the poor employee who disagrees or raises his disagreement. Tony Abbott is right when he said, and I quote, I fear that the government is counting on politically correct public companies and woke billionaires to create a climate where people are frightened to vote no, lest they be accused of being disrespectful to Indigenous people or even racist. Rightly, Mr Abbott said, it's not the company's job to give their staff political lessons, especially on constitutional change of this importance, which is for keeps. Well, if it can be worse, it is. I am not the only one to argue that this voice proposal cuts across a fundamental pillar of our democratic society, political equality. As Henry Ergas wrote recently, and I quote, it is simply undeniable that the proposal would grant one group of Australians a constitutional entitlement to a representative body of its own that other Australians do not enjoy, unquote. Henry Ergas writes further, for all citizens to eventually be equal, it seems that some citizens must be made more equal than others, unquote. And then as he says, quote, rather than reducing the differences that separate us, the voice will cement them into an effectively irremovable constitutional reality. At the same time, it's likely to engender the conviction that Indigenous Australians have some inherent trait that defines them and makes it impossible for their interests and aspirations to be fully represented by their non-Indigenous fellow citizens. 
And he says by reinforcing these stereotypes, it risks hardening the lines of division that have wreaked so much harm, unquote. Henry Ergas goes on, with Alice Springs spending the Australia Day weekend gripped in an epidemic of dystopian violence, this country's future deserves better. But then you have the further comment by Warren Mundine, quote, a year after the Uluru Statement of the Heart, I was in Mutijulu, a small community at the base of Uluru, and a local elder took me aside to tell me that the Uluru Statement of the Heart was not their culture and doesn't speak for them. Indeed, no national body can speak for Aboriginal people as a group because there is no one Aboriginal group, but hundreds of them, each with their own language and culture. I can understand Labor governments towing the line with their federal counterparts, but for the supposed Liberal Dominic Perrottet at National Cabinet to sign up without consultation with his party to this massive constitutional change has caused voters in the Liberal heartland to simply walk away from the party. I would assert that these premiers have little idea of what they're talking about. Indigenous father, Matthew Mulladad, is four hours from Alice Springs. He recently said he wasn't concerned about the voice. He'd never heard of it. As a young father, he said he had more immediate concerns. Well, make no mistake, that poll this week is an illusion, 28% strongly in favour. Patrick Dodson saying a voice should actually advise the National Cabinet changing our entire system of government. Now, one of them won't tell us what the voice to parliament would look like, but get ready for an accusatory campaign. Only this week, last Sunday, as I said, the Prime Minister of Australia argued that those who oppose an Aborigines only voice to parliament, such voice to be written into our constitution, people like me are trying to start a culture war. This indicates the depths to which the government has already sunk. It'll try to make you feel guilty for the opinions you hold, when in fact it's the Albanese government that's waging a war on our constitution and our culture. I mentioned yesterday the $5 note, removing the monarch's picture. We've got an assistant minister for the Republic, but there is no Republic. The government's created a new ambassador for First Nations people. Remember the Prime Minister told government workers that they didn't have to work on Australia Day. They didn't have to honour the day. Another attack on our tradition and culture. Yes, there is a culture war, but it's the government at war with us, with coal and gas producers, telling them what they can charge for what they produce. Who'll be next? It's not the opponents of the voice who've started the culture wars. These opponents are simply fighting against, and if they are allowed, speaking against the concept of racial preference. Forget all the hoopla and the threats and the warm inner glow of the woke brigade. This is about giving one racial group a constitutionally guaranteed additional influence over all areas of public policy. As Chris Merritt, the Vice President of the Rule of Law Institute of Australia has said, this referendum is not about reconciliation, nor is it about symbolism and being nice. It's about establishing a new institution of state that would permanently change our system of government. It would require us to abandon equality of citizenship by giving constitutional standing to a race-based entity, unquote. Well, my advice, don't allow the government to stifle your views. Don't allow the government to abandon the great principle of equality of citizenship. We elect members of parliament to represent our views, to be our voice. We may not really think that they do a very good job, but there are, there are 11 Indigenous representatives in the parliament, all of whom have an equal voice with the other 216 members of the House of Representatives and the Senate. No Indigenous citizen should have a greater constitutional standing than any other. I've said before, and I'll be saying it many times, the referendum must be rejected. Apart from the fact that we've not been provided with any information, it is a referendum that is wrong in principle. Separating a country on the basis of race was once called apartheid. It's an ugly term, but that is what we have here.
Well, let's go to our British correspondent, David Maddox. As you know, he is the one man who is full bottle on British politics. You can read David, and he writes beautifully too, at express.co.uk. Express.co.uk. You can be up to date on all of that. In the last 24 hours, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has announced a cabinet reshuffle. That may be the least of his worries. The just sacked Conservative Party chairman, Nadim Zahawi, is reported to have paid more than a million pounds as part of a settlement to the tax tax office over a quote unquote careless error. Now, Zahawi is gone. Another disgruntled backbencher may mean more internal trouble for the Prime Minister. There is a new Conservative Party chairman, but questions will be asked as to what Prime Minister Sunak knew about all this when he appointed Zahawi boss of the Conservative Party. Both Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak say they weren't warned of any of these Zahawi tax issues. The Prime Minister has ordered an independent investigation. The Labor Party are on the attack, but it doesn't end there. Almost amazingly, the BBC chairman, Richard Sharp, is under investigation over his alleged role in helping to arrange, uh, well, discussions, I think is the word I'd use, about an £800,000 loan for the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson. £800,000, whatever for. Then there's the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, youngish, who apparently discussed the loan with Sharp. Case was appointed by Boris Johnson. But what did he know about Zahawi and the loan row, to say nothing of Partygate, which brought an end to Johnson's Prime Ministership? Then, it doesn't end there, the current Deputy Prime Minister, Dominic Raab, is under investigation over bullying claims which go back over several years. One former Tory minister said, quote, they used to say the Tories would get done on sex and labour, uh, get done on sex and labour on money. These days we do both. But with the cost of living crisis dominating, voters will be unforgiving in relation to any scandal involving money. The elevation of Rishi Sunak was thought to end all these shenanigans. Now Rishi Sunak has restructured several Whitehall departments in a reshuffle. He's appointed a new Conservative Party chairman. He has defended Dominic Raab in his cabinet, saying he couldn't prejudge the outcome of an independent investigation into allegations that he had bullied officials. Amongst the interesting appointments, Prime Minister Sunak has made Joe Johnson, Boris's brother, a business minister in the House of Lords. The most important part of the reshuffle is that he's created a special energy department called Energy Security and Net Zero. But there are rumblings. What are Liz Truss and Boris Johnson up to? And several ministers and bureaucrats are questioning whether all of this is a good use of everyone's time. David joins me, David Maddox. David, you've said that the reshuffle is a sign of weakness with Boris Johnson and Liz Truss prowling. Can you just amplify those comments? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's unusual to have a reshuffle so soon into a premiership. I mean, you know, he's only just marked 100 days in office since uh, since the coup that uh, uh, removed Liz Truss back uh, back last autumn. And uh, I mean, obviously, there's a, it's a weakness because he's had to sack um, his party chairman so early. And uh, I, I ran a story, I think it was last week, uh, and I got I got this from a horse's mouth. Both he and Truss were were, according to my source in Whitehall, given national uh, crime agency briefings, which included a briefing on Sahawi's activities. Well, that makes it so, even worse. That makes it worse because they're both denying they knew anything. Exactly, you know. And it, I mean, my and, and I believe my source because it was personally pretty much organised it. So, uh, said, you know, it's inconceivable that they didn't know what was going yeah. on, and uh, uh, so you know, so that that shows a real question mark mm. over judgment. Yeah, quite. But, there, but there's this there's this bigger issue that you know he he has no real mandate. Uh, he was imposed as leader and prime minister by a group of Tory MPs. Uh, uh, with no reference even to the party membership, let alone obviously the country, uh, he, he's on very, very kind of loose ground in terms of uh, yeah. his his authority. Uh, and you know he's 20, 20 points behind in the polls. 
but uh, he's, he's not doing an awful lot. He's got these kind of five vacuous pledges, which uh, I won't go into, but they're not. I mean, they're calling exciting. him the submarine prime minister. No one ever sees him. Submarine prime minister, yeah. And he's stuck in his bunker. Yeah. And all the time, you know, Boris is doing his world tour. I'm surprised he hasn't been down to Australia yet. He's been everywhere <laughs> else. Uh, you know, uh, uh, criticizing his policies. Liz Truss, amazingly, to some of us, has come out of the woodwork again after. Uh, her humiliating exit, and and is starting pushing her low tax growth policy. Well, she's written a four thousand word article. She read this four thousand word article for London's Telegraph. But as you oh said, God, yeah. Riley, eighty one words for every day she was prime minister. <laughs> is Liz Truss going to reemerge? Yeah, I mean she, she won't be leader again. But you know, it's it's clear from my sources. The, the, the two of them are kind of coordinating. Boris is hitting him on foreign policy, especially Ukraine. She's hitting him on the economics. Yeah. He's weak. But, but, but David, and, wouldn't, yeah, da David, wouldn't the majority of Conservative Party members, though, agree with Truss and this mission for low taxes and economic growth? I mean, that's why they voted for her. Well, wh why else would you be a Conservative? You don't be a Conservative to, yeah. you know, to tax people to the eyeballs. I mean, a bit more, uh, and, and spend vast amounts of money. You know, you, you, you vote for socialists for that. And uh, we've got a, you yeah. know, she was removed for trying to bring in low taxes. She did a shoddy job of it, but she was removed for that. And uh, and you know, now we've got Sunak and Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor, who seem to be, you know, willfully putting up taxes wherever they yes, can find them. Yes. It's it's not going down well. So you're so, saying, I mean, right, yeah. okay, not going down well. So you're saying the momentum is gathering for another attempted coup yeah. in May. By whom? Well, I'm, I'm looking at supporters of Boris Johnson at the moment, and, and it's clear he's kind of this world tour which started in Egypt uh, with COP27, I lose count of all these COPs, but the COP27, I think it was, then he, he came back, unveiled a portrait of himself, then he went off to uh, Davos, the World Economic Forum, then he uh, goes straight to Ukraine, then to the US where he's fated by uh, the kind of leading Republicans, and he's back here at the moment, but it's, uh, you know, hitting the television studios. So, you know, he is clearly presenting himself now as uh, the alternative prime minister, the one who should be there. He's not even, it's, there's not even a real pretense about, about it at all. He's so, not even okay, telling people to support Sunak. So, you're, you're, uh, close, you're close to the action. Does Rishi Sunak, I mean, his wife is reported to be wealthier than the royal family. Does Rishi Sunak understand that there seems to be a gulf between his political leadership and the conservative grassroots. Yes, I think he does. Uh, and he made an interesting appointment to Miss Reshuffle you mentioned, um, which was to bring in as deputy chairman a man called Lee Anderson, yeah. who is one of the Red Wall MPs, very working class. He's an ex-miner, ex-trade unionist, ex-labour activist, turned very right-wing conservative Boris supporter. MP. Great guy, a Boris supporter. And, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and a Boris supporter. In fact, you know, I I, um, I published an article last night uh, where, you know, October the 20th, when Liz Trust was forced out, I actually had a conversation with Lee, in, um, Lee Anderson in Parliament, and his his conclusion was anybody but Rishi. Now he's Rishi's saviour, literally. It's it's amazing. Just uh, in 110 days. But anyway... He's uh, so, you know, he's appointed him essentially to be this kind of conduit to the kind of mm. Tory working class vote, mm. the red wall, as we call yeah, it. Up the, the, up the north. Oh, but see, you made the disturbing yeah. observation in one piece that you wrote, and I read, and you know your stuff, that Rishi Sunak is, quote, deeply insecure. Uh, are you saying mm. that someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg, for example, who was herded off to the backbench after the Boris coup, would say no if he were offered a cabinet position? I think Jacob would struggle, actually, to accept a cabinet position because he disagrees so profoundly with what Sunak is doing. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg believes in the, you know, the idea of collective responsibility among ministers 
And I don't think he'd want to be collectively responsible for putting right. up taxes and watering down the Brexit freedoms, well, which now, he thought was Well, well now, in, in a further problem, did Sunak promise jobs to people in order to get the leadership and have some of those people not, be, not got a Guernsey? Well, that, there, there is always that. There is always that. I, I, um, it's, 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 it's always hard to pin down what he promised behind the scenes, but yes. there have been stories that he promised the same job to several people. Mm. Uh, you know, uh. I suppose a means to an end. Well, but it's uh, you know, there's always people who are unhappy. Right. What about the argument that the party members want an elected chairman, elected by the party, not quote an unelected stooge of an unelected PM? It's pretty tough talk. It is, and, and this is part of his problem because, again, as I said, he was imposed uh, as leader by a group of MPs, not even all the MPs, and uh, he is. Uh, you know, in, in what many people think was a, a rigged uh, leadership election, you know, it, it, the, the rules were, were, were ludicrous, actually. Uh, and of course, it bypassed the members who yeah. had wanted Liz Trust over the summer. So we've now got this kind of grassroots rebellion with a thing called the Conservative Democratic Organisation, which is really picking up steam at the moment. And one of their things was to say, well, the party chairman should be elected by yeah. the members. Well, it's a it fair point. Their, their um, voice in cabinet. It, it's and, a fair uh, point. Anyway, obviously it's ignored that. J just no. on this deputy prime minister, Dominic Raab, is this bullying or simply telling lazy and incompetent bureaucrats to rewrite a brief to improve their spelling and punctuation and then he might thump the table along the way? And are some of these bullying claims by Remainers who haven't forgotten those who brought about Brexit? It's very hard to tell. I mean, Dominic Robb is a very, he's an abrasive sort of character and uh, he's hes not somebody you easily warm to in person. Uh, but, um, you know, to say he's a bully really is a, is a huge step. I mean, some of the things which have been said about him, like, you know, he was lobbing tomatoes onto a table, that, that's not really bullying. You know, it's, it's just weird sort of stuff. It looks like people are kind of reaching. For, I mean, Gina Miller was the latest one. Gina Miller was a big kind of Ramona, big Ramona campaigner. Uh, for uh, pro-EU, and uh, she's getting all upset because he used a BS word about some of her arguments oh, to her face. Gosh. You know, grow that's up. not bullying. That's just yeah, grow me, up. Grow up. Just on a major policy issue, why would, because this is now a big issue uh, within the government and the Conservative Party, why would any Conservative Party member or politician object to the Prime Minister considering withdrawing from the European Convention on Human Rights to prevent judges in Strasbourg from vetoing British law. Now, I think this is about the migration crisis, is it not? Where 45,000 crossed the English Channel on small boats last year, but the British government seeks to deal with this and then runs the risk of being overturned by foreign judges operating under a European convention. Wouldn't Brexiteers mm. say that Brexit can't be completed until the UK withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights. Is this a test for Sunak? I think it is a test for Sunak, and I, I, uh, I don't see how he can stop the migration crisis until we leave the uh, ECHR, yeah. actually. And, yeah. uh, and, he, and, and I can tell you his Home Secretary thinks that, Suella Braverman thinks that as well, uh, which is why he is now considering it. The trouble is that the Conservative Party uh, is not... At the, at the kind of top end, at the MPs end, is not particularly conservative. That's There's, correct. There's uh, you know a lot of liberal, let's call them liberal conservatives yes, yes, in there. Yes. There are more kind of liberal Democrats. Than well, I suppose it's a really. metaphor. It's a metaphor of where Sunak stands. So my last question to you: Do you think, as we're talking here tonight, that Sunak would have the guts to do this? I would be surprised, but you never know, actually, and and. You know, he's he's in a as as I've been saying, he's in a sticky position. Uh, if if he if he did this, it would be hugely popular amongst his party and in the country, mm. uh, and actually probably go a long way into helping his own personal position. Yeah. His problem is that he'd then have a rebellion of the very MPs yeah. 
who put him into place in the first place. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. <laughs> we've, been, we've been talking about this for months, David. Good, good to talk to you. Another interesting week ahead. I look forward to talking to you next week. Well done and many thanks. Yeah. Happy New Year. That's David Maddox. And you can see yeah, he knows everything. The inside stuff. You'll get it here. He is the political editor of Express Online. You can read him. He writes beautifully and up to the point by going to express.co.uk, express.co.uk, David Maddox. Well, look, before we go, when it comes to energy policy, here is a prediction. As soon as the going gets tough in this country, Australians will turn their back overnight on this net zero pipe dream. I've said a million times it can't work. We're heading down a dangerous path. Consider this, because the producers of coal and gas have had a cap imposed on what they can charge for their product, taxpayers are going to be slugged with compensation to the producer. Mind you, if the Australian government says there's a $125 per tonne cap on the domestic coal price, we have lost our reputation as an investment destination. To be fair to Anastasia Palaszczuk, she warned of this. And Anthony Albanese denied there would be billions of dollars of taxpayers' money paid to compensate the producer. Well, now we learn that the Rio Tinto power station at Gladstone will get $450 million of your money. This is the federal government's energy policy. New South Wales are rearing, owned by Origin Energy up Newcastle Way. Perite has committed $500 million, your money. When it was announced, the Prime Minister called it a modest package. Yet the compensation to power companies will be greater than the so-called benefits to the consumer. And remember, householders will be subsidised, we're told, to convert their gas stoves and heaters to electric appliances. They haven't told us where the electricity will come from. Albanese and Perite have committed to $7 billion to connect the snowy hydro to the grid. $7,000 million amongst your eyes water. Bowen has admitted that to meet these zero emissions targets, 43% by 2030, are you ready for it? We'll need 22,500 watt solar panels every day for eight years. Get that, 22,000 every day. 47 megawatt wind turbines every month. 10,000 kilometres of additional transmission lines. This is our government, our energy policy. What can you say? Except that they're off their rocker. They're so arrogant that they ignore the situation in Europe. There, the Russians, of course, as you know, have backed the Germans into a corner. They invaded Ukraine and Russia have dug their heels in. They control Germany's gas supply. As a result, they know that German industry is on the decline. This is because Germany shut down their coal-fired power plants and replaced them with unreliable, expensive, Chinese-made solar panels and wind turbines. But faced with the Russian retaliation, the Germans have finally woken up. According to Bloomberg, and I quote, Germany is considering rerouting existing subsidies for eliminating coal-fired power plants to help defence manufacturers build new production facilities, unquote. In other words, Germany is struggling to keep the Russians at bay because they can't manufacture weapons using expensive and unreliable wind and solar power. The very forms of energy Albanese and Bowen want Australia to rely on. So, to turn the tide of the war, they're on the verge of scrapping green subsidies and returning to coal-fired power. The British have found themselves in a similar position. Last week, the British press revealed that Scottish Power has admitted, and I quote, that some 71 of its turbines had to be hooked up to diesel generators to keep them warm in December so they didn't freeze or stop spinning or create blackouts. Perhaps this is another reason why British Petroleum, the seventh biggest company on the London Stock Exchange, says it will ease its transition to producing low carbon energy. According to the Wall Street Journal, BP's CEO Bernard Looney is planning on cutting back elements of the oil giant's push into renewable energy after becoming disappointed in the returns from the company's green assets. The Wall Street Journal reports that Looney, well named, will seek to maximise profits by trimming future investment in solar and offshore wind and switching the focus to oil and gas. Meanwhile, we are still in green la-la land with a government that's hell-bent on shutting down our coal-fired power plants.
We've got a government that believes solar and wind are the cheapest forms of power, even though the Europeans have figured out that they're the most expensive. We've got a government that's forcing our miners and manufacturers to buy carbon credits to offset their emissions, which is a huge carbon tax by stealth. And we've got a government that promised to reduce our power bills at the last election, only to preside over them skyrocketing. Well, let's hope we don't need a war in our region to finally wake up. That's all from me tonight. Thank you for your company. By the way, you can hear me on Radio 2CC Canberra with an excellent breakfast program hosted by Steve Centertiempo. We have a very good discussion every Thursday morning, which is tomorrow, at about five past seven. To listen in, just Google 2CC Canberra. And at that time, Steve's on air. Press the play button, which is the arrow at the top, and there you are. And don't forget, you can email me, alanjones at adh.tv. As I mentioned to you last night, I've cut down my load, so that's it for this week. But I'll shortly be announcing a new podcast. It will respond to questions you ask me in your emails, and it will involve a less formal interview with a notable figure who, for interest and energy, may well offer a totally different viewpoint. I'll let you know when all of that's happening. Meanwhile, you can listen to the podcast of tonight's show, which will be released at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. Just go to your podcast app. And while you're in the gym or driving the car or making breakfast or getting the kids ready for school, you can listen by searching Alan Jones. It's easy. If you have a difficulty, of course, email me and we'll help you out. Alan Jones at adh.tv. Don't forget the dot. Well, that's it for this week. I'll be with you next Tuesday night. Thank you for joining me. Tell your friends you are watching ADH. All the best. Good night.